Welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and today I'm joined once again by my friend Chad. How are you doing, Chad? I'm doing great. This is kind of like becoming a habit, I think. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, yeah. <laughs> and hey, I enjoy having you on the show. So, and I, you know, I certainly hope you enjoy doing these episodes with me. Well, you keep coming back after we did the Robot Overlords one. So, I think you kind of like doing these, right? Yeah, I do. I enjoy these quite a bit. Um, not always the movies, but. We won't talk about that last episode. Yes, uh, we can forget. Re- <laughs> okay, think of it this way. We mentioned we were going to watch Revenge of the Bridesmaids. We've finally seen Revenge of the Bridesmaids. Now we never have to watch that movie or talk about it ever again. And we've also learned not to uh, to tease anything we're going to watch because we could have. Uh... Yeah, we could have said, you know, that movie wasn't that great. Maybe we should do something else <laughs> instead. So, But anyways, today is going to be taking a Lovecraftian twist because we're going to be taking a look at another movie and it came from Netflix. Well, actually, no. came from Hulu. That's exactly. Like I said, that's we're in a bit of a dilemma because we can't really call this an it came from Netflix because uh, like I said this one we actually watched on Hulu and it's a Spanish film called Dagon, which... I'm going to probably be asking you a lot of questions on this, Chad, because you know a lot more about Lovecraft and his works and the Cthulhu mythos than I do. Yes, Lovecraft. I am a big fan. And I know you've mentioned that before, and we talked a little bit about Cloverfield and how, you know, you one of the reasons you wanted to see it is that you were told that it was Lovecraftian. Yeah. And then I remember you mentioned that the the monster in that movie actually was a little bit more, it it was probably more closer to Dagon than Cthulhu. So why don't we start right off the bat here. Since this movie is called Dagon, how would you think that the creature in Cloverfield is similar to Dagon? I mean, what can you tell us about Dagon in the Cthulhu mythos? Dagon was the, if you had to equate him to something, he would be like a Poseidon. He was a, he was a fish god. He was, uh, you know, he lived in the oceans. He, uh, he was one of the great old ones, you know, um, uh, to do a little perspective on stuff. Cthulhu is actually a servant of Dagon. So if you're looking at a hierarchy, Dagon is actually above Cthulhu. Okay. Hmm. See, and that's strange because I always thought like uh, Cthulhu was the head honcho of the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, no, Cthulhu is a great old one. Dagon would be considered a um, uh, what do they call him? Some like elder of, god or something? An or? elder god. Thank you. Okay. So, what exactly is the difference <laughs> between the great old ones and the elder gods? Well, when it comes to your sanity and um, how quickly you die, nothing. Um, and it's never really in Lovecraftian writing. He never really separates, you know, Lovecraft doesn't separate. That was done more by the guys who continue to write in the mythos, you know, um, August Derelith and some of those guys, they build a hierarchy based on what they think Lovecraft is going for. Now to, to, to put in the timing, August Derelith, who is the guy who really, coined the phrase Cthulhu mythos mm-hmm. or the mythos as you, as it's called was a 
contemporary of H.P. Lovecraft's. At the end of Lovecraft's life, so the end of his time writing, he actually conversed with August Derelith through letters and correspondence. He was very much, uh, and when I say he, I mean Lovecraft, was very much a, the term I think we would probably use as a Luddite. He, he didn't do phones. He didn't do anything like that. He didn't like technology? Correct. He, he was more into, he was, he was a prolific writer of, of beyond just the uh, stories and stuff that he wrote, the short stories and the longer stories and everything that he wrote. Somewhere in the vicinity of 10,000 correspondences that they know of. Yeah, because I remember a little bit about that. I recognize the name of uh, August Derelith because one of my first encounters with the Cthulhu mythos is you've probably, of course, heard of the Necronomicon. Yes. And, you know, the, the Walden Books version that, which I remember my sister picked it up. And this was back when I was in like middle school or something like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I remember reading it and seeing the name Cthulhu in there. And of course, you know, nowadays looking back, you know, I know that, you know, that Necronomicon thing was actually just a load of hooey. It wasn't really, you know, it wasn't really, you know, real actual writings. And yes, it was not a historical document yes. as passed it off to be. Because I, to my young mind, it was some scary stuff. Because I remember reading in the intro, they're saying that you know there's no effective banishings for the spirits in here, and they had something like the Mad Arab. Yep, the Mad Arab is the is the name that was given to the gentleman who wrote it. So I remember, yeah, there was at his the testimony of the Mad Arab, and then there was some story about how oh you know the the first publisher who you know, published this book, you know, their warehouse full of copies of the Necronomicon burned down and how supposedly there was all these tragedies that went along with doing the, you know, that went along with the publication of this book. And so right. again, for your, my young mind, you know, who didn't really know much about this well, yeah, stuff. They yeah. did a great job selling that. I absolutely. And, you know, I remember, Many years after reading that book, well, I never read it page to page. I just kind of, you know, page through it. I took a class in college called Ancient Near East Religions. And when I learned there about some, I mean, I recognized some of the names that we were learning when we were talking about the Babylonian mythos. I recognized some of that from the, you know, the Necronomicon. So when I actually came to understand some more of that stuff, it took it, it made it a lot less scary. And one of my other early experiences with uh, Cthulhu Mythos was from Dungeons and Dragons. Some of you old school gamers might remember the uh, first edition supplement Deities and Demigods. Yes, sir. Yep. And in the, I'm sure you probably have that book, right? I don't actually. Oh. I have nothing first. I have okay. nothing first edition. I have second and on. Okay, because there were actually four different publications of the deities and demigods from first edition uh, the, before they switched it. I mean, the original one had this bluish purple cover and it had a couple of weird looking deity like things fighting. Eventually, they when they started to reformat all their books. Well, actually, they kept the inside the same, but 
they released the version that had the orange spine and they had, I think it was the Jeff Easley covers and the new, they renamed it Legends of Lore and it had a really, really awesome picture of Odin uh, riding Sleepnir on the cover. But before that, uh, we had deities and demigods and they had the Cthulhu mythos and another one they had in there was the... uh, Oh, the the name fell out of my head. Ehrlich, uh, Michael Moorcock, his Ehrlich saga, Stormbringer. Okay. Yeah, that guy. Where they had the, you know, they had mythos, the Cthulhu mythos, and then they also had uh, the Ehrlich stuff in there as well. However, then they found out that, well, some of the stuff from Cthulhu wasn't quite in public domain. And another company, I believe it was Chaosium. Yep. Had still had the rights to the Cthulhu stuff. And, and I think they still do. Yep. And there was also, I think another company, it may have still been, yeah, I think it was still Chaosium. They also had the rights to the Ehrlich stuff. So the second printing, they acknowledged that where, you know, it said, okay, you know, thanks to Chaosium for letting us use this and this. Then the third printing came out where they're like, well, you know, why are we acknowledging another company? So they took out the Cthulhu mythos and the Ehrlich mythos stuff, but they still left it in, I think the back on the back cover or uh, somewhere in like the contents. Again, they still left this stuff. And then eventually they came out with a fourth printing, which, you know, they corrected that. So mm-hmm. there's actually four printings of it. I have the second one where it has the Cthulhu mythos and the Ehrlich saga stuff. But in the beginning, they do acknowledge the uh, chaosium for letting them use that that material. Yeah, and in fact, um, to to kind of tie this into gaming as we're doing, uh, Pathfinder actually shortly, uh, Sandy Peterson, who is one of the gentlemen who wrote the original chaosium role playing Call of Cthulhu game, they hired him back, and he is releasing the mythos to be used with Pathfinder. Cool. It's um it's a it's a co-op thing. It's a right now it's a Kickstarter thing. Um that has been funded and then some. But he is going to he totally wrote a new rule set to work with Pathfinder so you can do the mythos in a system that people understand better. Because okay. if you have played a Call of Cthulhu game, it's a percentage-based system. Mm-hmm. It can throw people I run the system a lot. It no longer throws my people, but it did at one time, you know? Yeah, because from what I've heard of Call of Cthulhu, and I've never played it, so, um, I mean, you're going to know you're, you're going to know a lot more about this than I will, but from what I understand, a lot of the thing with Cthul- with the Call of Cthulhu game, you know, that's one of my friends was always talking about, you have to do sanity checks, where you see certain things and you risk going permanently insane. And from what I understand, there's a lot of stuff in there where if you do encounter some of these creatures from the mythos, you're better off running away and not trying to engage them directly. And well, actually, I think in one of our couple episodes ago, we talked a little bit about this where usually in Cthulhu mythos, you're not going directly against, you know, Dagon or Cthulhu. You're going against their cults. Yes, nobody nobody would survive the mythos creatures, the you know the gods, the yeah. the uh, the old ones. 
I mean, there are there are certain things. One of my favorite creatures that I use it's called a blood vampire, mm-hmm. and basically what it is is it's just this ball. It's about the size of a basketball. It's just tentacles that suck blood. <laughs> <laughs> now it can be killed, um, but you have to do blunt type damage to it. If you shoot it. It just passes through all these tentacles and does no damage. So if you don't know how to fight it, it can kill you really quickly. Hmm. But what I always tell people, especially new people, is if you see something and... It's not human. (laughs) It doesn't look like you, run away. (laughs) Yes, and so the... I think it would be interesting to do something like that and not necessarily just, you know, call a Cthulhu, but a campaign with that particular flavor. I mean, I'm not, I, I've never used any of the Cthulhu mythos stuff in D&D. Mm-hmm. I mean, in addition to the stats for the, you know, the, the, the elder gods and the great old ones, they also had stats for like the deep ones and yep. some of the other, uh, you know, some of the other creatures, because of course, you know, they're creating like, Dagon and Cthulhu as with godlike stats as you would find them in right. Dungeons and Dragons. So obviously even you know even other deities in general you're not going to fight them unless you're doing some crazy insane high level epic campaign. Yeah, no I mean just just as a as a as a reference point. So standard human character in Call of Cthulhu somewhere between 6 and 12 hit points. Mhm. Okay, it, it's it's a deadly system. You don't get to go negative. You don't get to get healed. You know, zero hit points way. and you're dead. Right. You well, actually, the way it's written, you get to a negative three, but it's not the same as D and D. It's basically you have this split amount of time, which is about eighteen seconds, to stop the bleeding, or this person dies. Mm-hmm. There's no, you know. There, there, I shouldn't say there's no resurrection. There is a resurrection spell, but you don't want it used on you. <laughs> and Cthulhu, just as a reference point, only has about 170 hit points. But <laughs> the sanity checks that go with Cthulhu are insane. So he starts off, he's got 10 times the hit points you're going to have, at least. Yep. And he's gigantic. I mean, he's, Cthulhu is, you know, as tall as a mountain type thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you're probably not going to have a weapon that's even going to be able to pierce his skin. Exactly. And, of course, you're probably not even going to be able to really get close enough to use it because you're going to go insane. Exactly. I mean, just the, the just the sheer, I did a campaign once at a convention. And I think I've said before that when I do convention campaigns, especially Cthulhu convention campaigns, they are a no-win situation. Mm-hmm. You're going to go insane or you're going to die. Because there's just no easy way to get out of something like that without doing a no-win situation. Yeah, because as I believe they explained it in the Deities and Demigods, when dealing with the Cthulhu mythos, the best you can hope for is indifference. Yes. And I remember... Uh, there was one of the quotes, I don't remember if it was in Call of Cthulhu, but I think they did it at the in this movie. There was some quote from Lovecraft about how perhaps the best thing in the universe is that we can't comprehend all of it or something to that effect. Yeah, 
He was he was very much Lovecraft was very much into the mysteries of the universe. He just looked at them in a different way than you or I would yeah. look at them. You know, he was very much into occult. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was a practitioner of the occult, but I think it. Uh, I think he kind of was just interested, interested in it. Or yeah, yeah, he was a New Englander. He was an Angliophile. He loved England, which you can see when you read his reading. When you read his writings, he spells everything in a British English style. Okay. You know, so armor is A-R-M-O-U-R. You know, I mean, he was that much in love with England. Though he never went there. <laughs> nor was he from there. He just had this love, you know, and he was he was a voracious reader. He was sick a lot of his life, too, especially as a child. So he just read and read and read. So, I mean, I'm sure he's, you know, he was just so well read that, and he read strange things. I mean, he was never one to sit down and read, you know, Moby Dick, even though he may have. He was more likely to sit down and read, you know, transcripts that were taken from uh, the Egyptian pyramids, you know, of the uh, the hieroglyphs that were there. You know, and that's the way, that's the kind of things he was interested in. You know, I could talk about Lovecraft forever. So, yeah. why don't we... <laughs> I'm going to take one thing you said and bring us back to the movie. So you talked about the Deep Ones. Yep. So in the movie, Dagon, this city that they go to, oh, what was the name of the city? Yeah, it, it was it, the Spanish... Imbaro, I think it was? Uh, yes, Imboca. Imboca. Which is as close as, as you can get in in Spanish to Innsmouth, which is, as we said before, uh, this particular movie, it's based more, even though it's called Dagon... It's based more on Shadow over Innsmouth. So right. just as a little fun fact on the side, there was a video game for the Xbox, and I think it was probably for the PlayStation and PC, called Call of Cthulhu, Dark Corners of mm-hmm. the Earth. And it was based on Shadow over Innsmouth, where I've seen some of the cinematics from it. It's different than a lot of shooter games because your ammo was very, very limited. So... It encourages you to run away whenever possible. So it's and, like real life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also what was interesting about it is instead of having a health bar, different types of injuries would affect your character in different ways. So like, and I, I noticed this in the movie and I kind of want, I don't know if this was a scene in the story or uh, if the developers of uh, Dark Corners of the Earth saw this movie and took it. But there's a part where the uh, the the protagonist jumps out of a window of a of the of the inn because everyone's trying to you know these people are trying to break down his door and and come catch him, right. and of course he messes up his leg, and that happens in dark corners of the earth, where okay. when stuff like that happens in dark corners of the earth, it affects your character because okay you just jumped out of a window and your you know legs all messed up, so your character's going to start to move slower. In order to fix that, you have to have a splint, and you have to put a splint on your leg, and then eventually your leg would heal. It incorporated the insanity aspect as well, where if your character started to look at certain things, you would start to go insane. And if you didn't look away fast enough, you would end up killing yourself because you just went insane. Yep. 
Cthulhu in all its aspects, whether you're reading the stories of Cthulhu, whether you're running a campaign or playing in a campaign, it's very gritty. It's very noirish. You know, the the original series was set in the you know the 19 teens, so it's right in that that noir you know type thing. I mean, now we've we can play in the 1880s. You can play in the 1920s. You can play in what they call modern. There are even there's some stuff where you can play in World War II. There's stuff where you can play Cthulhu in Roman times. I mean, now they've got a skin for it in just about any time period. What about uh, Cavemen versus Cthulhu? Can you do that? I'm sure you can. I don't know. I've <laughs> never seen one, but I could write that. <laughs> yeah. So this particular movie... It's made in 2001. It is rated R. It does have some nudity in it. So after we discuss this... the movie, Al. What's that? That was the best part of the movie. The nudity? <laughs> no, not really. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the... So yeah, just something to keep in mind if you are going to be going over to Hulu and watching this movie after we're done reviewing it. Uh, so that keep that in mind. It is R-rated. It does have some blood and gore, disturbing scenes, and it does have nudity. So be very uh, careful with who you decide to watch it by. So on to the movie. So it takes place more modern day or back when, you know, the movie was made and it opens with a person having a dream where he's scuba diving and that's where he sees a mermaid. And then there, you know, looks like there's some sort of symbol or something that she's in. And uh, that's when this, all of a sudden this mermaid springs at him with these razor sharp teeth. Okay, so spoiler alert, that symbol is the Eye of Dagon. Okay, so yeah, I figured there was probably some meaning behind it. Yep. And yeah, I mean, if definitely if I make any mistakes as far as the Lovecraftian elements of it, you know, please mm-hmm. correct me because, as I said, you know way more about this stuff than <laughs> I do. So I know way more than most normal people do. <laughs> Should we be concerned about that? Um, not until I, not until I start chanting later. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so hopefully you all won't have to make a sanity check while listening to this, but anyways, so <laughs> this is where we meet Paul Marsh, who is a business tycoon and he's on a, a boat with his girlfriend, Barbara, and a couple of friends of theirs. And then they a storm of course hits. And I do like how they built to the storm where the all of us, natural storm, pardon the unnatural storm. Yes, where it's like in the music, I believe, I think like the music had a little bit of almost chanting effect when they were doing this scene. Right. What they were doing is there was chanting coming from Imboka. Oh, yeah, that's right. And basically what they were doing is they were doing one of their their, uh, prayers to Dagon. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Dagon being the, the god of the ocean or the sea... So, you know, in essence, Poseidon, he kind of has some control over the weather. And they call in this 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 storm, which just comes blowing out over the, the mountaintops. And just, you know, in no time it comes in and, you know, the ship wrecks the ship on a reef. And I'll let you take over again. I jumped into your job here. Oh, it's no problem. I mean, it's okay. So my job, I'm not getting paid for this. But well, you usually do the synopsis. That's what I mean. Okay. Like, oh, yeah. it's no problem. No problem at all. So, but yeah, now I remember, uh, they, I remember the, yeah, there was that line where they heard that chanting sound and they saw the town and one of them is probably like, oh, there's probably a church service in there. Right. So, right. 
Okay, so their ship, their boat gets shipwrecked, and one of the women, Vicky, is trapped below deck, and the, her friend Howard stays with them while Paul and Barbara go to the village in order to, uh, you know, try to get some help. Right. And then this is where something attacks them in the boat. So, I mean, you could pretty much tell they probably weren't going to survive. So once Paul and Barbara get to the shore, they're looking around the town. And uh, again, it's it was pretty deserted. And what few people they did see, it's like they didn't really try to approach them. And eventually they go to a church. Well, what they think is a church, but it has a sign on it, the Esoteric Order of Dagon. It is a church. It's a church of Dagon. Yeah. <laughs> Where they find a priest who, you know, they're asking for help. Um, and then the, the, the priest recommends they go to speak to a couple of fishermen at the docks. And then um, that's where Paul goes to, you know, back to the docks to get on a boat. And Barbara decides she's going to try to find a phone in order to call someone while they go try to help their friends. So up to now at this point, I know I personally felt like about the third, the first third of the film did have kind of a slow build to it. It did. Um, they, uh, they did, however, do some stuff that I really enjoyed. Okay. Um, they started showing slight defects in some of the townspeople. Mm-hmm. Like at one point, the priest kind of points and he's got these webbed fingers. Yep. You know, they, they, the people were all very, their complexion was very off. Yeah. And some of them, like they were wearing, uh, the type of masks where you can just see their eyes and you can't really see much else. So I did like how they did that, how if you went into this not really knowing anything about the Cthulhu mythos, you would still at least understand that, okay, something is obviously not right with this town. I right. Mean, you got and, the- and then they really throw it on you when she finally gets to this hotel where she thinks there's a phone. And the guy turns and he's got gills. Mm-hmm. You know, so... As I was saying before, to tie it back into the deep ones, that's what this town is. It's a town full of deep ones. Yes. <laughs> or or people transforming into deep ones. Yes, because the just to take a little uh, side uh, side quest here, because the I believe in the mythos. Well, actually, no, we're, we'll go on that later because they do explain it. They do explain why these are kind of half fish, half people uh, right. later on in the movie. So we'll we'll just go to that part there. So Barbara disappears. Paul finds his friends are missing, and when they he gets back to town, he's taken to what's probably the most disgusting-looking hotel room I've ever seen in cinema. Yes. And, you know, he says a word, which I'm not going to repeat here, because there is a lot of swearing in this show. Yes. <laughs> but he gets into the bathroom, and he looks around, and he goes, Oh, F, no. Yeah. And I'm just like... I'm right there with you, buddy. I'd be looking for the other hotel in town. Cause... Exactly. I mean, I, just that scene, I kind of got a shudder because it's – I mean, I remember he turned on the water and like this – it was all like green and chunky. Yeah, and you could tell it stunk because he did a good job with that too, showing us that, you know, this is putrid water. This is not water that people should be in or using. <laughs> yes, and so he ends up falling asleep on a chair where he dreams of the mermaid again. And, yes, but at first he thinks it's Barbara. Yep. So, but yeah, I, she. I, just, I think that was an important, an important part of the scene. Is he's sitting there in a the chair? You don't. You haven't realized at this point that he's fallen asleep yet. Mm-hmm. 
And Barbara walks by him and goes to the window, which none of these windows had glass in them. Did you notice that? No, I didn't. They were, it was just rain was just rolling in on the floor. Well, that's how cheap this hotel was, I guess. They wouldn't uh, replace the glass in the, in the windows. So anyway, she walks by him, goes to the window, and she's looking out. And he's like, oh, Barbara, you're back. And, and he walks over to her. And this is the second time you see the girl. Mm-hmm. We find out later her name is uh, Uxia Cambrero. But you don't know it at this point. At this point, you're yeah. just like, oh, it's the mermaid again. And this time, instead of the teeth, it's tentacles come shooting out of her mouth. Yeah, and I, you could kind of tell the CGI at this point was pretty, again, still pretty primitive by today's standards. But again, yeah, and this, you know, and that's that's what I when I had texted you while I was watching it and said that this is horrible. That's where I was. Yeah, the more I thought about it. I'm like, you know, there was a really good story, and we'll get to this too. But it was a really good story. The acting was good. The CGI. The, the special effects were horrible. <laughs> yeah, and again, I, of course, it's one of those things where we always got to kind of look back and keep stuff in mind, but I have a feeling they probably didn't devote a lot of the budget to this movie to the uh, to the CGI, but I think it looked like a lot of the fish people, they tried doing that with practical effects, though. Yes. So I thought that the like the prosthetics and the stuff for the fish people looked really good. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to continue on, and again, after getting that little jump scare where the, I was expecting the sharp pointy teeth again, but instead it's like, you know, all these tentacles spring out of him. Yep, and yep. this is where he again has to escape the hotel because the people are starting to gather outside the hotel and he has to try to flee. So he jumps out the window and he makes his way to a tannery full of human skins so this is the point where I feel that the movie really started to pick up more um, because I did find it up until this point, I, like I said, I did find it very slow moving and really kind of a slow build. But yeah. once it get to about, got to this part, there was a lot more action and I miss it. I do like the acting that the guy playing Paul did. Yes. And, you know, and again, I think it just set the mood perfectly. It's like, okay, he's surrounded in, Inside of this this tannery full of human skins, and as including, he's including Howard. <laughs> yep, and then he, I remember after he escaped that, this is where he meets an old drunk guy, Ezekiel. Oh, I loved the I loved the Ezekiel character. I liked the character, but I I felt his accent was a little hard to understand. I, I think mean, it was a, a mixture of his accent and he had a strange voice. And I don't know, I, I've never seen the actor before. His name is um, Francisco Rabal. And I, I wonder if he was doing a, a voice for this character or if that was just his voice. Because he sounded like he had Popeye lost... Popeye was my thought. What's <laughs> that? I know, I just felt he had this very salty sailor voice to it. Where, again, kind of like a Popeye-type voice. Right. He kind of reminded me of someone who, you know, smokes a lot. <laughs> yes. Like I said, very raspy voice. It did get a little hard to understand, but fortunately at this next part, it does do a pretty good job of at least explaining with the pictures as to, you know, what exactly happened in this town. And I right. remember as they were hiding... And I liked this scene, too, where they showed one of these people, you know, see people running, you know, going by, but apparently his legs had 
probably transformed into like tentacles or something because he wasn't walking. He was just kind of dragging himself along the ground. Okay, right, right. So Ezekiel uh, tells Paul about what happened here is that the village, it was a fishing village, obviously, and they had fallen on some tough times where they just weren't catching a lot of fish. So this is where a person named... I forgot, because his name, Captain, wasn't it like... Captain Orfeo Cambrero. Okay. Uh, yes, he had came into town, and he told the people that they should worship Dagon. And if they worship Dagon, he would bring prosperity back to the town. So here's where Ezekiel explains that in order to get financial wealth, because sometimes the fishermen find out that when they pull up their nets, there's you know strange gold artifacts... And he explains that they have to agree to crossbreed with Dagon. So that's why there's all these half-man, half-fish things running around. Right. So Paul realizes that he has to try to escape. And this is where they find that there is only one car in town. So Ezekiel distracts the guards to try, so Paul can try to hotwire it. And this is where he runs into Uxia. Yeah, Uxia. And I'm trying, this is the part where I believe he finds out that, you know, it's like her legs, instead of legs, she has like octopus tentacles. Yeah. That was a little creepy when he, when he, cause they, they were starting this whole sex scene, of course. And he pulls back the covers and she's got these big old tentacles. Yeah. He's just like, oh, and he runs away. It's like, I guess I can't blame him. You know, I was kind of expecting he'd pull it back and there would be the mermaid thing. Yeah. That's true. I would expect the mermaid tail as well. But yeah, seeing those big slimy octopus tentacles, it's like, nope, 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 (laughs) nope, nope. Right. So Paul does eventually get the car back and he does try to escape, but it's crashed. And this is where he's captured and taken to a barn with um, Ezekiel. And then also uh, he finds that Vicky and Barbara are both still alive. Right. So they're trying to escape, but again, they're caught. And this is where we find out that uh, Vicky, again, the woman that was trapped on the boat, uh, had been impregnated. So she commits suicide while the, you know, the others make their escape. So then uh, they, again, they get captured. They're uh, chained up and the... I forgot the guy's name, the uh like the high priest of the the priest of the town. Um the priest is uh Sacerdote. Okay. Cause he I remember he came in, he's like, you know, I will see your faces again, but you will not see mine. So it's like, okay, I think we know what he's gonna do to them. And he does to poor Ezekiel. Yep, poor Ezekiel gets he skins his face off and I mean just watching that scene, I mean it's like that gave I had a rough time watching that scene, I'll be honest. Yeah, that gave me the willies because if you think about it, if someone did do something like that to you, theoretically you'd still probably be conscious as they were peeling your face off. Yeah, and he and and it it really is because he didn't cut deep enough to you know, to do anything other than peel the skin off and just I mean just the thought of all and this is going to be kind of gross, but all the exposed nerves. Ooh. You know, besides the, the the sheer pain of having it pulled off, all those exposed nerves, you know, when he finally dies, it's like you feel, you're like, oh, 
finally, he, he doesn't have to feel that anymore. Yeah, I mean, like I said, that scene just... <sighs> yeah, yeah, that's a rough scene. Yep, so uh, now and then they're about to do the same to Paul, but this is when Uxia comes in and, you know, says that Paul pretty much has no choice but to join them. Right. And then this is where, you know, they're going to get they're going to get married. So they leave and Paul escapes killing the guards and the priests and he's trying to look for Barbara and a, oh, you know Oh, we need to step back. There's one okay. thing important that we missed. Okay. So when they're captured with Vicky before she commits suicide, Barbara tells him that if they do to her what they did to Vicky that he should kill her. Okay. Okay. That's important because of the scene we're coming into. Yes, which is another one of those scenes that's like, because <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, the uh, we get to a scene where it looks like they're going to be, you know, sacrificing Barbara. They're like, you know, carving. You know, she's naked and they're carving, uh, you know, symbols and stuff into her flesh, and they hang her over this big pit. So Paul he comes in and he attacks them with kerosene and oh, starts can, setting them fire. I'm sorry to interrupt you again, Al, but yep. this was one scene from a mythos stand, stand, stand that I had a big issue with. Okay. Number one, they're they're making they're they're basically giving Barbara to Dagon to be a mother, to be to be a, a seed capture, you know, so that she can have a child, and it's another one of these deep ones, and they're chanting. I.e. I.e. Cthulhu Photogen. Yeah, I did catch that. So and I, I was like, oh, so that that kind of annoyed me from a mythos standpoint. And the other thing from a mythos standpoint that could that made me really mad was when Barbara dies and Dagon comes up the well and, you know, rips her arms off and down the, the well, they gave him all these tentacles. Dagon didn't have tentacles. So it's like they got confused where it's like, okay, you know, is this supposed to be Dagon that's that's coming up to eat her or Cthulhu? Because pretty much all you just really see is just these tentacles coming up. And lots of them. Yes, <laughs> which you, you would associate more with Cthulhu because right. that's one of the things that people know about Cthulhu. It's like, how did he explain it? It's like not quite a man or a dragon or an octopus, but a combination of all three or something like that. Yeah, I always think of Cthulhu as a combination of everything you don't want to dream about. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, yeah, the creature just comes up and because uh, Barbara was suspended by this bar over this pit. And, yeah, basically just comes up and gobbles her. And all that's left is just her arms sitting there, you know, uh, hanging off of this bar. Yeah. So this is when things look pretty bad for Paul. As you know, he just lost his girlfriend, and the he finds out that you know his fire really didn't do much to the the people that were there, and this is where the big shocker. It's kind of a a Luke, I am your father type moment, where uh, Uxia comes in again, and this time there's another horribly deformed person who reveals himself to be Paul's father, and Uxia's father. So you yeah, find out that's, that. Um... What was his name? Xavier Cambrero. Okay. Where you find out that Paul and Uxia are actually half-siblings, where they have the same father but different mother. Because you find out that after Paul was 
uh, you know, before Paul was born, his mother escaped the village. So, right. and uh, my understanding is that at that point, Xavier was still human. Because it looked like he was pretty deformed, unless he was just wearing some sort of like ritual mask. By this point, he was. Oh, I yeah. Think. Um, yeah. But I think at that point, because she, um, Uxia, at one point said that he was once young and and beautiful, and you know, yeah, he hadn't quite transformed yet. Right. Okay. So this is where uh, Paul he sets himself on fire because he's. They find out that, okay, his destiny is to come and be, get married to his half-sister. And then they would go dwell with Dagon forever. So he decides that he's going to try to set himself on fire instead, uh, falls down the well, and then uh, when he's in the water, he finds out he's sprouting gills. And pretty much his only choice is he he and Uxia swim down into that cave that we saw him explore. You know, in that dream at the beginning of the movie, the 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 eye of Dagon. Dagon. And I think that the, I mean, I think there was some quote I remember they ended, which was probably from Shadow over Innsmouth, something about living with Dagon in a world of wonders or something like that, or living forever in a world of wonders. I believe, yeah, I believe that's from Shadows over Innsmouth. So, now you've read Shadow over Innsmouth, correct? I did, but it's been a lot of years. So as far as how you would remember uh, the book and how would, well would you say that it compares to the movie? I mean, I know you mentioned the whole thing about how they're supposed to be worshiping Dagon, but they're saying prayers to Cthulhu instead. Yeah. The, you know, honestly, I, you know, I read the, I read the synopsis and of the, of the movie and they, they mentioned both Dagon and Shadows Over Innsmouth. And it, it does. It compares the Shadows over Innsmouth. I mean, uh, I would say it's it's much more heavily borrowed off of that than the Dagon. Because mm-hmm. um, like we had talked about, Dagon, you know, happens in the middle of the ocean on a on a, a floating group of, you know, fish carcasses and yeah. stuff. <laughs> Which, you know, it, it was such a dark movie. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing... Um, cause I watched it on a computer screen. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing there's, there's stuff in the, in the, the scene that I've missed, you know? Um, it's, it's one of those movies that I'm going to go back and watch again at some point. Yeah. And I would have to say if I had to rate this on a scale of one to five, I'd probably give it somewhere between about a, I would probably give it actually about a solid four because I did enjoy the movie. My only real complaint is that, like I said, it did start out a bit slow. Some of the acting did seem a little wooden at times where it wasn't really, the reactions weren't really believable. But then there were some where, you know, I think when Paul gets to the point where he's finally starting to realize what's going on, that's when I think it it did better. Plus, like I said, when he, you know, as we both agree, when he was in that, you know, the hotel room from hell, Right. Yeah, and like I said, he goes in the bathroom. He's like, "Oh f no!" Right. Exactly. I mean, honestly, um, if I'm gonna rate this movie, I'm gonna say three and a half stars, based on a, a lot of things, but mostly just the misinterpretation of the mythos. So, if you're not a mythos person, you know, and you enjoy a good, I don't even know if I'd really consider this horror. 
I I think I would because would have, yeah, I mean it does have. I mean a lot of times, uh, horror it movies does have the jump scares and yeah, it's got a couple. But I think that one of the things for me anyway that really defines horror movie is usually there's going to be some sort of supernatural element to it. And right. also there's, I know a lot of times in horror movies, there's people that they're coming in conflict with forces that they really don't have much of a chance of really defeating. And I, I think in a way the ending kind of reflects that because while sometimes horror movies do have happy endings, you'll see others where, you know, no, the, the ending really isn't what we would call a happy ending. Right, and um, the end of this movie, I don't think you can consider that a happy ending either. No, I mean, okay, yeah, you're going to live forever, but you're going to be this this human-fish hybrid, and you are being forced to marry your half-sister and live with some slimy sea god at the bottom of the ocean. You know, though, however, um, the actor who played Paul... Um, Ezra Godden? Ezra Godden. I thought he did an amazing job. If you watch his character from the very beginning of the show to the end, just before he, he barbecues himself, you can watch him slowly go insane. Yeah. And that's, like I said, I, that's in, that's important in this type of a movie. Yeah. Cause uh, as we were saying before in the Cthulhu mythos, insanity plays a big part where, you know, yeah, you're always at risk for going insane because you're usually going to come into contact with forces that you you can't even understand, yeah, you much less your, fight. You can't wrap your mind around it. I mean, it would be like trying to wrap your mind around the, you know, the, the universe expanding, okay? Mm-hmm. So we all know it's expanding, right? They, they've, they've proven that. But now try to wrap your head around about what's it expanding into. Exactly. And I, you know, I think that's one of the things that Lovecraft pointed out is that perhaps one of the most merciful – and again, I don't remember exactly where the, how the quote goes, but it was something mm-hmm. to the effect of perhaps it's best that we can't comprehend all this stuff because if we did un- understand it and we could comprehend it, we would all go bonkers. Right, right. And, and you know, I think the man truly believed that. I mean, he was an odd duck, but he was intelligent. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, you know, even some stuff with, like, you know, astronomy and, you know, cosmology. And when you are talking about, you know, some of the, like, science, some of the stuff out there, it is kind of hard to comprehend. Oh, I absolutely. mean, this whole idea of, you know, space being so vast and infinite and never-ending and one theory that I've heard about, which, and I, I mentioned this many, many, many episodes ago. Uh, it's one of my earlier episodes. It was somewhere in the teens. Okay. Uh, my friend Dawn and I, we did a two-part series about alternate universes. And there is one scientific theory as to how, um, let me rephrase that. There is one theory as to how alternate universes could be theoretically possible. That you know the, you know that the the theory is that okay, we've got our universe, which from Earth, the furthest we can see, 
I guess uh, the estimate is that the universe is like I think it's like fourteen point six billion years old. Yeah, something, uh, something like that. that. Old, older than us. But uh, anyways, about a couple of years out, uh, just yeah. a little bit. <laughs> so, anyways, so and the furthest galaxies we've seen, I think, are about thirteen or so billion light years away. Okay. So you think about it. Okay, there's still a good billion or so years of history beyond that. Right. And again, this is just one of those things that's kind of mind boggling when you think about it, how even though light does travel extremely fast, it still takes time to get from point A to point B. I mean, we think in our own solar system, you know, light from the sun takes approximately, I think it's like eight minutes and 20 seconds or something to get to the earth. So if you were to somehow block out the sun completely, or if the sun were, this is impossible, but if the sun were to somehow go dark right away, we wouldn't know that it, that happened until a little over eight minutes later. Right. And, you know, you look at a a galaxy or star very far away, like, again, the closest star to us, Proxima Centauri or in the Alpha Centauri system, little over four light years away. So again, you take a look at that star. You're actually seeing what it looked like four years ago. Right. And it'll be gone gone for four years before we know it. Exactly. And then, uh, but to get back to what I was saying with alternate universes, one theory is that, you know, there may actually be, uh, you know, because if we take the theory of the whole Big Bang, that the Big Bang may have actually happened in, you know, more than one place. And again, if space is truly infinite with no end, then, yeah, it is possible there could be stuff way, 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 way out there, you know, trillions and trillions and trillions of light years away. Who knows if maybe there was another universe that formed there. So the theory is that it's, well, there's only so, a, there's only so many ways stuff can play out. So that would mean it is possible that if you do have, you know, this infinite universe and you do have these other universes forming inside of it that who knows maybe somewhere out there there's another universe that evolved very 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 similar to ours but maybe in this universe i was born in florida and you were born in alaska so we in that universe maybe we never met and never became friends you know so like I said, you just kind of think about some of that stuff. It's like, yeah, it's kind of mind-boggling. So, <laughs> Yeah, it really is. I mean, if hey, you we... sit down and talk about it and, and, and try to wrap your head around it, I mean, truly wrap your head around it, you could easily go insane. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, we actually did become kind of educational there for a few moments. Oh, well, now we got to cut that out. Yeah, now we got to go back to the mindless conversation. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> so all in all, I would say that Dagon is worth a look. And Absolutely. I don't think it's on Netflix anymore, but there was a, they actually did make a movie called a Cthulhu. It was made by the Lovecraft Historical Society where it was done with the techniques that they would have used at the time where it was a right. silent picture. That was the one in, that was done in like 2005 or something like that. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure when it was made. I just know that the, the Lovecraft Historical Society uh, you know, did make a movie based on Call right. of Cthulhu. So it sounds like you've seen it. I have not. Okay. Um, believe it or not, I have not had the uh, the chance to. 
I heard it was on Netflix. Somebody told me it's on Netflix, and I went and looked for it, and it wasn't on Netflix. So. Yeah. Because I have seen it on Netflix, so it used to be at one time. It's just, yeah, apparently yeah. it's not there anymore. But I mean, there's, there's actually a lot of movies out there based on, on on Lovecraft. There's Call of Cthulhu. There's actually a couple different versions of Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, because I remember there was this one. It was just called Cthulhu, and the subtitle was like, Welcome Home to the End of the World or something like that. Um, right. And then there's um, there's Reanimator. There's a whole Reanimator series. Yep, I've seen the first one. I haven't seen the any of the others. Um, there's the Necronomicon. I think it's called Necronomicon Book of the Dead. Haven't heard uh, of that one. There is. I'm trying to think what else there is. Um, well, it's not. There's, there's there's a lot. There's actually quite a few of them out there. And there's other ones. Yeah, the Mouth of Madness is out there which is based on the Mountain of Madness, I believe. Yeah, because I heard that there were plans to make uh, a movie based on At the Mountains of Madness, but and I did see a trailer for it, but I don't know if it ever actually got funded. Then and, there's there's one on The Space Out of Time, or The Color Out of Space. Uh, Shadow Out of Time or something like that? No, The Color Out of Space. Okay. Um, which is another one of his short stories. Um, but yeah, they're, I mean, they're out there and then there's, there's spoof movies out there too. There's the last Lovecraft. Yeah. I've seen, I think that one's on either Netflix or Hulu. I, I know it's, it's on, out there. Yeah. It's on Hulu. I've seen that one before. I really enjoyed it. It It is a spoof though. I mean, it is yeah. not, it does not take the mythos seriously. Um, even though the opening scene is quite gruesome <laughs> after that, it's, uh, it's pretty tame as far as that goes. Yeah, and one movie, I don't know, you know, it has kind of a Lovecraftian feel at the end. Have you ever seen Cabin in the Woods? No. Okay, because I liked that one. It It's kind of an intentional parody of horror movies because it uses a lot of the same tropes and cliches, how... You know, you've got the one of the characters, this big, strong, manly, a jock athlete guy, and you know he's got his uh, girlfriend, who you know, pretty attractive cheerleader type girl, and right. of course they go out in the woods and they start making love, and then you know, of course the girl dies. But uh, that movie does have kind of a Lovecraftian ending, I guess, where you find out that um, <laughs> all the stuffs of the movie has been engineered by this society, the secret society, where every year they have to do these sacrifices to these old, you know, these elder God type things, right? Because if they don't do it, then, you know, everyone in the world gets killed. So that one was an entertaining movie. I liked it. It's, I think it's one of those movies though, that kind of got mixed reviews, but it was intentionally trying to be a parody, as I said, of a lot of the tropes and cliches we see in horror movies. Yeah, I'll have to ask my daughter about that one. I know my youngest daughter watched it. She's a big horror movie fan. Mm-hmm. I don't know where she got it because neither her mother or myself are horror fans. <laughs> um, but uh, she loves the stuff. So I'll have to ask her if she's watched that yeah. one. Well, I think we're going to draw this episode to a close. So uh, definitely I think Dagon is worth taking a look if you have the opportunity. So Chad, if people want to... Read some of your writings. Where can they find you? Ah, we're going to plug it again, huh? Yes. We are going to plug uh, Nut Up or Shut Up. That is my blog. It is uh, has very little to do with gaming, movies, or anything that we talk about here. It's actually more of a, 
of a positive reaffirmation kind of website, or at least that's what we try to do. You know, and maybe after watching some of the movies we've seen, maybe we that's what we need sometimes is a little positive reaffirmation. There you go. Like, no matter how bad my life is, at least I know I'm not a, a human fishman half-breed who's going to spend eternity married to my half-sister at the bottom of the ocean. Correct. Um, and that can be found at nuosu.blogspot.com. It's nut up or shut up if you want to just uh, search for it on Blogspot or Blogger. And, you know, they should come check out your stuff, too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, I think I'll pitch my stuff, too. Uh, there but, you go. Uh, yes, the, of course, you can find me at poigamestudio.com. You can go to Facebook, look up Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook. Feel free to stop by and like the page. And, of course, the Geekery in General podcast is available through both iTunes or on podbean.com. But then again, if you're listening to this, you probably knew that already. So so thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, hope you enjoyed the show, and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and... Don't let the fishmen bite you, I guess. <laughs> All right. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>